Alrighty, everyone, welcome back. This is Tavis Killian and Anthony McDaniels bringing you another episode of The Wacky World of Energy. Now, if you're back and watching us on YouTube, welcome back. If you didn't know we did this show on YouTube, well, yeah, you can listen to this podcast, but we also add quite a few other elements to it. We'll post the articles, other just fun little things, or even graphs to enhance your understanding. So if you listen, that's fine. You get most of the information, but it's certainly better on YouTube. But enough of that. No more self-promo. Anthony, how are you doing this morning? Hey, hey, hey. Another wacky world of energy this week, huh, Tavis? Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. What kind of stupidity do we get to snarf about, snarkle about, whatever. What word am I looking for? I don't know. It's just, it's so damn goofy. I can't even come <laughs> up with a good goofy word. What, what we see every week. So, why don't we have you kick us off here? Where are we starting up with? Sure thing. Well, we always start with some international news, and our first story this week comes from, you may have guessed it, oilprice.com. The article was released on July 18th, the day of this recording, titled, Saudi Arabia Reveals Oil Production Capacity Limits. What? Yeah. You mean that they can't just produce um, whatever amounts because some administration wants them to? Certainly not as easy as flipping a switch or just punching in 15 million barrels and see oh, gee, let's out. get into that. let's let you go into the article then, <laughs> sure here's the bullets at the top the saudi proud prince mohammed bin salman shared the production capacity ceiling of his country at the gcc summit that's the gulf cooperation council last year saudi arabia said it expects to have boosted its oil production capacity to 13 million barrels per day by 2027 at the summit, the Saudi crown prince also criticized the growing backlash against fossil fuels. So we got a little bit of everything. Here's the body. Saudi Arabia, the world's top crude exporter, will not have additional capacity to increase production above the 13 million barrels per day it is pledged to have by 2027. Quote from Saudi prince Mohammed bin Salman, we also stress the importance of continuing to inject and encourage investments in fossil energy and its clean technologies over the next two decades to meet the growing global demand with the importance of assuring investors that the policies adopted do not pose a threat to their investment to avoid their reluctance to invest and ensure that no shortage of energy supplies would affect the international economy. And I want to inject here real quick. I, uh, you know what? We don't talk about this enough and everybody talks about, you know, going clean, green, whatever. You know, he says something in there. I'll restate it. We stress the importance of continuing to inject and encourage investments in fossil energy and its clean technologies. Its clean technologies. Mm -hmm. To elaborate, carbon capture under the ground and sequestration. This industry is the most well-equipped of any industry to do that. We produce it. We also refine it which means we can break things out. If the incentives are there and the market supports it, we could easily pull carbon out of plenty of smokestacks. We can easily collect carbon from multiple industrial processes and inject it in the ground. There's a lot of ways to do what we do in the oil and gas industry, quote unquote cleaner, if your concern is carbon emissions. There's a lot of ways to go about leveraging our own industry to, end the, to, to meet those goals in the end or to help satisfy them in, in some part that doesn't get enough attention, but it's certainly a very real thing. And I would venture to say that carbon capture and sequesterization under the ground into a, a pretty Loctite reservoir is probably one of the most practical solutions at removing carbon and putting it somewhere than anything else out there on the market right now. So I I'll let you continue. That. Yeah, sure thing. His quote continues, 
Quote, the kingdom will do its part in this regard as it announced an increase in production capacity to 13 million barrels per day, after which the kingdom will not have any additional capacity to increase production, he added, end quote, is carried by the Saudi press agency. Last year, Saudi Arabia said it expects to have boosted its oil production to 13 million by 2027 from 12 million now. Earlier this year, the Saudis confirmed this target, with energy prime minister Prince Abdulaziz bin Salman telling Time in an interview, quote, we are targeting our production capacity to become 13.4, 13.5 million barrels a day by 2027. At the Jeddah summit, the Saudi crown prince also criticized the growing backlash against fossil fuels, saying, quote, the adoption of unrealistic policies to reduce emissions by excluding major sources of energy without taking into account the resulting impact of these policies on their social and economic pillars of sustainable development and global supply chains will lead in the coming years to unprecedented inflation, rise in energy prices, increase unemployment, and exacerbate serious social and security problems, including an increase in poverty and famine and crime rates, extremism, and terrorism. End quote. Right off the bat, that sounds like a raving lunatic, but hey, already we're looking at a lot of these things. Increasing unemployment, increasing cost of energy, people not excited to invest in fossil fuels, as they call it, because... The new president of the United States just immediately strikes down a project. It's a it's a weird environment for conventional energy, but I think there's a lot of upside that's being ignored right now. Yeah, and I would say too, you know, I mean, obviously the guy's going to be biased, right? He made <laughs> a lot of money by selling oil. Uh -huh. This is not lost on anybody who knows who the man is. Mm -hmm. um, although biased or not. The world still does need and use a lot of oil, even in places that have tried to go green. We've talked about this before. Even places like California, they still use as much oil as they did 40 years ago. <laughs> Been going green 40 years. Mm -hmm. You're still using a lot of oil. Maybe less per capita, but you're still using a lot. So you better know that. You know, to me, this is what feels like he's actually trying to warn the world. Like, he either make sensible policies and understand where the backbone of your energy structure and system and the wealth of your nations, let's be honest, to have all that energy abundance, you better understand. And if you ignore that, there will be consequences. It's not a threat. It's an observation of what powers the world because as soon as there's any hiccup, Everybody's begging him and his cohort, can you get us more oil? Can you get us more oil? And he's sitting over there like, what? All your wind turbines and solar panels are OG. No, they're not just working out mm, full replacement, and they won't. Okay? Supplements, yes. Foundational, no. So, to me, it seems like the guy is actually just saying, look, you continue to go down this pathway, things aren't going to get better for you. They're going to get worse. Hmm. And this could just be the beginning. And, and I'll also say, too, he's saying that in five years, they'll increase their production one million barrels a day capacity. In five years, the United States increased its production capacity, I think, three or four million barrels a day. Mm -hmm. Right. So we can't just keep relying on all these other places out there to just continually be a faucet of uninterrupted and unending supply so we can do the whole I don't want it in my backyard thing now I find it's a somewhat ominous thing I mean in all reality 
if there's any growth to hydrocarbon demand in the next five years globally, mm-hmm. there could be a significant shortage unless the United States is able to fill the gap with a lot of development like we did in the 2010s. It could certainly happen, but unfortunately, the oil prices we're seeing now don't seem to be creating those skyrocketing rig rates or CapEx programs. So with that, I guess we'll we'll just go on. I'll kick off the next article here. Mm-hmm. Ship seized in Maripol. What is that? That's the Black oh. Sea, right, Tavis? Yeah, yeah is that the uh, extremism and security issues that Prince Salman was just talking about? Maybe one <laughs> example, yeah. So this is a Rig Zone article from July 13th. 2022, in the Ukrainian port city of Maripol, Russian-backed separatists have seized two foreign flag ships. That's according to what Dryad's global latest maritime security threat advisory, which highlighted that these were Panama-flagged Blue Star 1 and Liberian-flagged Smarta vessel. The Blue Star 1 is a general cargo ship, while the Smarta is a bulk carrier. The self-proclaimed Donetsk People's Republic Foreign Ministry informed the, the shipping companies that their vessels were subject to forcible appropriation of movable property and forcible conversion into state property without compensation to owners. Hmm. Hmm. So wasn't that long ago where they said they were going to try and blockade Russian crude because, you know, one of the tools they'd use is they wouldn't be able to get insurance policies for mm-hmm. the sh- tankers? <laughs> insurance policies. Okay, fine. We'll take some of your crude tankers, you know, and then let's see if the insurance policies want to cover you for your loss. No compensation. <laughs> the insurance premiums for stuff going through the Black Sea even if you're Western-facing, are probably going to go through the roof if you can get it covered at all. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to need a military escort. With an <laughs> at least. You right? want guards on the boat at a very minimum. Yes. This is the first... This is why we wanted to talk about this article. This is the first such incident against commercial shipping. Looking elsewhere in Ukraine, they stated, in the Odessa region on July 7th, a Russian missile hit a Moldovan tanker carrying diesel that had been drifting in the Black Sea. This is the second time a Moldovan tanker had been hit, after the first being hit with a missile February 25th. It said in its previous, Dryad highlighted, on July 3rd, Turkish authorities detained a Russian cargo ship, which Ukraine claimed was carrying stolen grain. <laughs> Ukraine has accused Russia of stealing grain from seized Ukrainian territories. Russia has previously denied that Russia stole any grain. In further reporting, the Ukrainian military have stated that a landing craft of Black Sea Fleet D-106 is reported to have exploded when it hit one of the Russian Navy's own mines near Maripol. So, we'll just go to the end here. Declassified U.S. defense reporting is alleged to show that Russian forces have been mining the waters south of Odessa port as part of a planned blockade of Ukrainian waters. You know, we talked about, what we talked about a month or two ago as well, we talked about it seemed like Russia just wanted to have control of the Black Sea and all of its ports, yeah? Mm-hmm. They don't need to take the whole country of Ukraine if they control probably what exceeds 80% of their export capacity through the Black Sea channels. So, you know, just more international turmoil, but see, now we have 
private commercial vessels being targeted and seized. Insurance companies aren't going to be able to deal with that. Governments will have to deal with that. And um, I would say it's very highly likely that a Panama flagged ship was probably destined for the United States. Mm-hmm. More likely than not, to be honest, everybody. So it's a proxy attack. You take my stuff, I take your stuff. You take my ability to get insurance to sell my oil, then I take away your ability to have security and moving your oil. And I do it one step removed, but it has the same effect. Mm -hmm. So more to watch on that, but things that get into commercial stuff um, becomes a little bit more of a, you know, another step towards not an improving situation, let's just say that. So a nice way to say it. Yeah. So, um, anyway, what next article did we want to talk about here? Next, this one concerns international markets. This is from CNBC. It was released on July 14th, titled, A Coming Copper Shortage Could Derail the Energy Transition, a report finds. Now, I'm going to use this as an opportunity to plug a periodical that Rare Petra wrote about back in 2020 involving copper and how it relates to crude and trading in commodities. Never a better time that this has been more relevant to read. I'll go ahead and link that below as well. But here's the title. Here's what it looks like. Definitely recommend you check that out. But back to this article. Here are the key points. Demand for copper is booming, but supply can't keep up, jeopardizing net zero emissions targets, according to a new report from S&P Global. Copper is key to electric vehicles, wind and solar power, as well as the infrastructure that transports and stores renewable energy. S&P Global's new report forecasts copper demand nearly doubling by 2035. Quote, the energy transition is going to be dependent much more on copper than our current energy system, end quote, says Daniel Jurgen, vice chairman at S&P Global. Here's the body of the article. An all-electric future depends heavily on copper, and looming supply shortfalls could hamper nation's goals of reaching net zero emissions by 2050. Unless significant new supply becomes available, Climate goals will be short-circuited and remain out of reach. I mean, that, that's the general idea of this article, right? Because when we have green energy, we have battery systems, technologies to distribute that. We need a lot of electrical-related infrastructure, not so much a combustion engine that takes uh, use of hydrocarbons. But uh, with a supply shortage this significant and no new sources, I mean, that's just going to drive the cost parity of green energy and oil and gas way, way further away again, no? Yeah. Well, everybody's been enamored with electricity ever since Edison turned on the, you know, electric light bulb. Mm-hmm. But there are some realities, and they are realities. I mean, in the article here, it says electric vehicles, solar and wind power and batteries, free energy storage all run on copper. An electric vehicle requires two and a half times as much copper as an internal combustion engine. That's a lot of copper. Two and a half times. Mm-hmm. Two and a half times. Mm. Not only that, yep. but further on in this article, it talks about our current situation. It's not as simple as building new mines. A new copper mine takes, get this, 16 years on average to get off the ground, yeah. according to the IEA. For the time being, increasing utilization at existing mines and ramping up recycling can fulfill some of the higher demand. So it's not looking yeah. good. Well, and then right after it, you, you were told it requires two and a half times more copper for an electric vehicle than an internal combustion, they also say that solar and offshore wind need two 
to five times respectively more copper per megawatt of installed capacity than power generated using natural gas or coal. Now, that's of installed capacity, Mm -hmm. but in Texas right now with all of their heat waves, (laughs) I've been seeing numbers that their wind output's been 10%, 8% of installed capacity. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you were only going to get 10% of your installed capacity functioning when you need it, then that two times becomes 20 times more copper in equivalent reality than to just have a coal or a natural gas plant. And they're worried about a copper shortage now. Mm. This does not bode well at all. And people, again, this all comes down to, this isn't a moral argument so much as what's right and wrong for where you should get your energy. I mean, people can go down that pathway, and authors like Alex Epstein does a great job at, at illuminating that, that argument. But more reality is that this is just factual observation. You want electricity, don't you? In modern life, you would like it a lot. And if you have a bunch of electric vehicles, then uh, you better darn well have it. Otherwise, your mobility goes to zero real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to be honest, again, where our energy comes from and what it takes to get it. And I'll be honest, you know, we've got a lot of oil production and gas production in this country. We don't have a lot of relative mining and material extraction. Why? Because those things take things called strip mines. And strip mines are a lot more unsightly and a lot less desirable to have in your state than just a couple of pads with oil and gas horizontals on them. And that's Mm -hmm. the truth, guys. That is the truth. That's why Nevada and Arizona make such great places to mine, right? Because it's just an open desert that's probably not going to be inhabited. They do, but even there, it takes an act of God almost to get something open. Mm-hmm. All the things you have to go through between the EPA and all this other stuff, local governments, state governments, you know, all the surveys you have to do. I mean, whatever it takes to get oil and gas supplies online, you might as well multiply that by 5x as far as the timeline is concerned to get the same amount of copper online and in the system and being utilized. So if it takes two years for you to get your average well, Permitted, staked, surveyed, drilled, put online. And I don't know, in some areas it takes longer, in some areas it takes less. But let's say it takes two years. It's probably recent, say two to three years. But now they're saying it takes 16 years on average to get a copper mine in place. Mm. Yeah, so we're talking about stuff that you need a lot more of it to have the equivalent energy output. And it takes a lot more time to get it going. Right now is a bad time for the copper markets to be dropping in price. Because well, bad for it, who it depends on, right? Because, I mean, China, they're in an excellent position to keep selling this stuff. But like Jurgen says in this article, the United States copper production has gone down by almost half in the last quarter of the century. So we do not have hardly any stake when compared to some of these other players. Yeah, no, we don't. And what I say by bad is the only thing that helps you jump the regulatory burden and hurdle of developing this stuff here domestically is better economics to pay for teams of attorneys and Mm. this and that and even lobby and say oh look we gotta you know and get the word out even pr campaigns to local people to state people right like lower prices doesn't make it easier to do that right so it kicks the can down the road and are you going to get new development on your shores for your needs And it doesn't look like that's, you know, I mean, copper went to an all-time high 
we leave last year at four, almost five dollars. I think it's a ton or whatever the future is priced in there. But you know, you know, a new a new geopolitical order, right? You know, mm -hmm. I mean, the rest of this article goes into you know a lot of these demand for minerals and metals that fuel our future will ultimately create new world orders as countries rush to secure, secure these supplies of copper and lithium, nickel, and other vital resources. There will be a new ge geopolitical order around minerals like copper, said Jurgen. He noted that the copper supply chain is much more concentrated than that of other raw materials, including oil. China has been more focused on creating a primary position in the supply chain for minerals that will be necessary for a net zero carbon, and copper is a prime example of what a key position they're in. Basically, what he's saying is you can get oil and a lot of other raw materials pretty much a little more level loaded across the world. Even with all of our environmental policies and labor laws and all this other stuff, we were still able to become the world's largest oil producer again. To become the world's largest copper mining country. That's not in our, car, or that's not in our hand. <laughs> no. It's just there's too much environmental disruption for people to stomach it. I mean, it's as simple as that. They can't even deal with the invisible carbon dioxide that they are told is so horrible is going to melt the planet. They are not going to want to see a strip mine down the road that they drive to and from. Okay, they just won't. So, you know, you've got all this, we're going to have to do this, shift this over here, shift this over here. We're going to have to go green and this and that. There seems to be a recognition from everybody who has any actual knowledge of the energy space that no matter how much you want to go green, you still need to use a lot of oil and gas. Hmm? Mm -hmm. And as you go green, you're going to need a lot more materials and metals and stuff like that, which the Western nations as a cohort are very thinly you know, geared towards providing their own supply to meet their climate goals. So what it tells me is half of the world realizes that all this oil and gas is still going to be needed and bought and paid for and consumed. And why don't we also try and control all those minerals and metals and stuff like that, the concentration of that stuff. I mean, yeah, they could, the United States, they could do all that. They aren't going to get to it unless <laughs> stuff gets a lot more painful and it drags on by you a lot of time. So, you know, with that, I guess I'll let you... Go up to the next article, Tavis. What do we got next up here? Well, this one's sort of a little two-parter because uh, Oil Price initially published the first article on the 14th and the other one today. So we'll give you the background and then the update. Background article, Armed Guards Raid Libyan National Oil Company as Political Shakeup Escalates. Now, this was published on the 14th of last week. Here are the bullets. An armed group said to be affiliated with Tripoli's Libyan Government of National Unity raided the country's national oil company in a move to force a change in leadership. The NOC is now filing a formal complaint to protect the organization, quote, as the backbone of the national economy and the last lines of defense against it, end quote. The armed raid on the NOC comes amid an intensifying rivalry for control of the country's oil production, exports, and revenues, for which the NOC is the gatekeeper. Here's the body. Dun, dun, dun. An armed mass group said to be affiliated with and acting on orders of the Libyan National Government of Unity, GNU, has stormed the National Oil Company, NOC, in an attempt to force longtime head Mustafa Sunella out and install a new board. According to the NOC, on its Facebook page, 
Some employees were injured in the raid, but Sonala continues to refuse to step down. Following the raid on Thursday morning, Sonala addressing Sonala addressed the public on national television, saying that Dubaiba's government lacks legitimacy. The NOC is now filing a formal complaint to protect the organization. Earlier this week, the GNU in Tripoli, led by interim Prime Minister Abdul Hamid Dubaiba, appointed a new board to govern the NOC, dismissing Chairman Sonala, according to a leaked government decree. Dubaiba is attempting to replace Sonala with Farat Omar Bengdara, a formal central bank governor. This all right, so is just, pretty uh, convoluted. <laughs> yeah, it's very convoluted. So first of all, um, a little a little pronunciation clarification there. You can edit this oh, out. I'm sure I'm butchering. It's Tripoli. The Marines would be quite disturbed with you saying Tripoli. Hey, sorry, I don't have a lot of uh, involvement. <laughs> but that's fine. That's fine. So uh, basically what we have here is we have a national oil company in Libya that was blockading their own production. They were just not putting it on the market. And all of a sudden you have this masked group come in and come over and say, oh, we're going to have a new person running the national oil company. I mean, this is the equivalent of, I mean, for them. I mean, this, is the, this isn't just going into a boardroom. This is the, for a country like that, this is the equivalent of somebody storming Washington, D.C. and putting in their own energy secretary. <laughs> or minister, right? You know, like that's kind of, yeah, it's the national oil company of Libya. So mm-hmm. they aren't very happy about that. And what do we have, um, you know, four days later on July 18th, uh, malicious armed and ready as Libya's new national oil company lifts the oil blockade because they have a new chairman. Wow. That was fast. That was <laughs> four days, man. Yeah, we got the new chairman. Now we're going to lift the oil blockade. Uh, now, why do we bring this up? It's first of all another example of general, you know, when little skiffles like this in the Middle East aren't new. We've been around for decades, right? But what I find highly curious is that we have the president of the United States does this little tour out there in the Middle East around the same period of time, and everybody's kind of telling, dude, we don't have much more oil, and all of a sudden we have this mass group come in and basically forcibly remove one chairman of the national oil company to install another chairman and not even a week later the oil blockade's going to come off and all this oil is going to come on the market i don't know that we had anything to do with that i have no idea but i will tell you this much it's very possible that in light of finding fruitless results from other talks and requests that we'll look across the board all right who's dysfunctional with getting oil out Oh, Libya. They still can't figure that out. They got all this turmoil. Well, let's get somebody new in there and so that they'll say they'll do it. Now, I will also say that just because they put in a new chairman doesn't mean that those wells will magically just turn back on and go smoothly. Um, I'm sure there will be a number of uh, differently opinioned workers within the company than what the new chairman says. You know? So we'll see what happens. I don't particularly think that this is going to create a massive watershed of new oil to the Western world being kind of short on supply availability. We'll see. But we wanted to bring that up for two reasons. One, it's another example of dysfunction and, you know, friction, armed things going on, forced things going on in countries with natural resources for energy like oil and gas. 
and then you have these i mean this is just one step short of you know a regime change really you know let's go change out the the chairman of the national oil company i mean it's like their energy secretary and the energy is the main part of their economy so there you go anyway with that i think we can start swinging it over either are we ready to swing back over the pond here to where we are tavis uh, kind of so our domestic articles this year this week i'm sorry this episode uh, they got one common denominator, Biden. So the first one's going to relate to his trip, and then the rest to sort of the policy space our commander-in-chief is crafting. But this first one, from Oil Price, published today of the day of recording on the 18th, Biden fails to secure a firm pledge from Saudis for oil production boost. And I mean, come on, we've talked about this for a little bit. I'll get into the article before we tear it apart, but U.S. President Joe Biden returned to Washington from a trip to the Middle East without receiving a specific commitment from the top OPEC producers to boost oil supply to the market in the very near term. President Biden visited Saudi Arabia and even met last week with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman after making a U-turn in his attitude towards the kingdom in recent months. Two years ago, President Biden described Saudi Arabia as a pariah state and criticized it for its track record of abuses in human rights. During meetings in the Saudi Arabia and on the sidelines of an Arab summit in Jeddah over the past week, President Biden failed to secure pledges from Saudis, Iraq, or the UAE, the largest producers in OPEC. This much was expected, as multiple sources and U.S. officials told agencies last week that there would not be any public announcement on an immediate oil supply boost. Instead, the White House issued vague statements around market stability. And I can't say I'm too surprised with this outcome so far. There's more article to get into, but even a couple of weeks before he left for this trip, he was talking about the journalist that was assassinated and how it was just absurd and diabolical. And, you know, of the things you said, I probably agree with, but let's zip it up before we go begging other countries for favors right after yeah. we insult them. Yeah, I know. And this, the, the, the lack of basic diplomacy skills is just sickening. Mm -hmm. I mean, this guy, he wants to bring up, you killed a journalist in 2018. You know, maybe they, yeah, they did. And that was bad. We talked about that before in one of our episodes too. But you need something from these people. Stop poking them about the decisions they made in their country for political reasons four or five years ago. Just stop. Just stop doing it. Mm -hmm. it's, it it's not going to change anything. Yeah, as if they're right? going to It's not going to bring the guy back to right. life. That was it's not going to change their minds about why they did what they did. It's just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. And then you have, you have, I mean, I'm reading that, you know, I mean, you did a big Middle East trip, right? Mm -hmm. Went to a lot of different places. He shook some people's hands, but when it comes to the crown prince, fist bump. Really? Fist bump. Oh, oh. yeah. That, that was – the White House said something along the lines of, nah, you know, they want to limit the exposure and things because, you know, COVID. Okay. Fine. Fine. But if you're seen shaking the hand of another leader in the <laughs> Middle East and on the same trip – you go meet the crown prince of Saudi Arabia and give him the fist bump. I can tell you right now that from what I understand about their culture and respect and this stuff, I just don't think that went over very well. No, I'm oh, going to leave a bad taste in their mouth. Basically, I'll shake the hands of another leader or two, but the crown prince of Saudi might be dirty. That's how they interpret it. Mm -hmm. And they don't take kindly to that kind of stuff. Honestly, Biden, you should have shook the guy's hand and lathered it with freaking hand sanitizer afterwards when you're <laughs> off camera. 
probably kiss them on the ring finger too. Yeah. If we really are going to Just get some oil insane. out of them, you know, I mean, the worst diplomat that I. I just totally out to lunch has no freaking clue. I mean, these these are little things. Read about it, mm-hmm. you know. Learn about it, right? Like, I mean, that's basically what you told the guy. You might be too dirty for me to shake your hand. I shook a hand with a couple other people in recent weeks, and days, but I won't shake your hand. I'm gonna fist bump. Oh God, mm-hmm. I just. And then we're gonna bring up this thing from 2018 again. I just uh, <laughs> whatever. On to the next article. Like I said, oh, oh, sorry, you want to take it? Uh, Sure. From the Huff Post, July 18th, Biden's energy coordinator expects gas prices to dip towards $4 per gallon. Hmm. A key Biden energy advisor said on Sunday he expects gas prices to continue following towards $4 per gallon. It's not $5 anymore. <laughs> it's now $4.55, and I expect it to come down more towards 4 Yeah. The U.S. recorded 9.1% inflation in June, a four-decade peak, according to the Associated Press. Gas prices, though, have eased since the record of $5 per gallon reached in mid-June. The war in Ukraine created extraordinary circumstances for the U.S. and other big energy-consuming countries. Yeah, it surely did. And it's going to continue because the rest of the world figured out they can just trade the energy with each other without worrying about U.S. sanctions Mm -hmm. because they can trade with each other. Well, that sounds wonderful. Gasoline's going to go back down to $4 a gallon. Ah. Well, we'll see. Ah, I'm skeptical, you know. And another part of this article that catches my eye, this uh, coordinator, special presidential coordinator, Hochstein, he said... This is the fastest decline rate that we've seen against a major increase of oil prices during a war in Europe where one of the parties in the war is the third largest producer in the world. So these are extraordinary circumstances. We've taken very tough measures to address them right away. I'm going to have to disagree. Of the measures they took between what SPR released and a proposed gas tax holiday, compared to the $20 decrease in commodity prices, I think those two things are largely ineffective. It's taken a lot of credit for something that I think the market's really They're taking credit did for they him. Did, they did nothing. Uh-huh. Nothing. I'm going to take credit for helping the guy lose five pounds. He's 400 pounds. But I only gave him five cheeseburgers today instead of eight. <laughs> Whatever. Yep. You've been feeding the guy cheeseburgers every day for the last four years. It's your fault he's so damn overweight. At least you were an enabler of the situation. If it isn't your fault. I mean, the energy policies of this administration are absolutely horrendous. Come killing pipelines, making biofuel mandates even more, you know, making it harder for refiners to even operate, stay open or reopen. Ugh. Yeah. Well, they can take credit all they want. When something goes in the right direction, they'll take credit. When it goes in the wrong direction, they'll blame everybody else. <laughs> they'll blame Putin. They'll blame big oil companies. They'll blame gas station owners. But then all of a sudden, things to go right a little bit. Hey, we Look what we did. You didn't do a damn thing. You sat there and talked. You're a freaking moron, and I don't believe you. And to be honest with you, I don't think the majority of the population, the votes in this country, believes a lot what they're saying now. Anyway, all they know is... Things still cost a lot more than they did a couple years ago when it comes to filling up their tank or heating their home or cooking their food. And that is still a problem. 
So unless we figure out, again, to be honest with ourselves about where energy comes from and what powers our modern life, we're not going to start sowing the seeds that we need to sow to get new supplies online in the coming years at scale. We don't do that. This does not trend in the right direction for the average person. It gets worse. So with that, maybe before we can start doing the right things, we can just start killing more of the wrong things in their infancy. Mm-hmm. Next article. Tavis, take it away. Oh, I also have a question I wanted to ask you about this one, but I'll wait until I get you some more information. This is also from Oil Price, released on the 15th, titled, Biden's Energy and Climate Bill Could Be Dead in the Water. West Virginia's Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who holds a swing vote in a 50-50 Senate, said on Thursday that he would not support President Joe Biden's Energy and Climate Investments Bill essentially deadlocking the piece of legislation the Democrats have sought to pass to help the administration's clean energy goals. Senator Manchin declined to back the energy and climate provisions as well as the tax provisions in the reconciliation bill on which the Senate Democrats have been working. Manchin told on Thursday Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer that he would only back a reconciliation bill that reduces the price of medicine and extends subsidies for the Affordable Care Act. Democrat brief discussions a Democrat briefed on the discussions told CBS News. Senator Manchin is thus dealing a blow to President Biden's energy and climate agenda by refusing to not back the bill as is. Now, my question is, do you think it's really that? Because uh, I don't think it's any secret. He's pretty heavily invested into coal, right? To me, that seems like a bigger reason he might say this. But again, that's a huge conspiracy theory. <laughs> well, yes, he is. I mean, Senator Manchin is from West Virginia and... West Virginia has a lot of coal. Has for a long time. We've been using it for a long time. Mm -hmm. Again, it comes down to energy reality, though. <laughs> Especially when all this natural gas we're making, we need to start sending a good chunk of it to Europe. Hmm. So what the heck? Gas prices are going up. Well, that means coal becomes a little more economically uh, um, challenging mm -hmm. to a natural gas plant, right? Mm -hmm. Coal can still be done relatively cleanly if you get a cleaner source of coal and then you do certain things to the smokestacks, for example, and the processes. Um, yeah, he could be self-serving, but, you know, arguably lots of people are self-serving to some degree. At the mm -hmm. end of the day, though, facts generally line up in one way and not in another. And then these facts are that those baseload power plants are needed for our modern life. Yeah. And if you want to go out there and start killing them, go ahead, have fun with that until the weather is up unpredictable, but don't worry. We know what the climate's going to be globally in a hundred years. Give me a break. No, <laughs> we don't. We don't. We just don't. Anybody who believes that, runs on a paradox of human intelligence that just blows my mind. We know what the climate will be in 100 years and what all these impacts mean, one or two variables, and what that'll do in one or two ways, and exactly over what period of time. But yet you same people don't realize that right now you're using all this oil every day. <laughs> How can you be so illuminated with your mind and not know what you're currently doing? Mm -hmm. It makes no sense. At all. It just doesn't hold water to me. Now, if Senator Manchin wants to 
kill a bill that would open up nuclear power plants, I would wince a little bit more because that would be self-serving to the point of, I don't care if those are good too. I just don't, that doesn't benefit me. Mm -hmm. The green bill is a whole lot more than just his affiliation with coal though. And at the end of the day, he would just put the federal government more on the pathway of what Europe's done for the last 20 years. How's that working out? It's not. So I'm glad that this thing's dead in the water right now. It doesn't mean it won't or can't come back, but... It's a bit uh, of a trend. The, the landscape trend. is changing because the well, last yeah. paragraph in this article, the failure of the reconciliation bill is another setback for President Biden's clean energy agenda after the Supreme Court ruled at the end of last month that the EPA does not have the authority to set greenhouse gas emission standards for existing power plants. In a climate case brought by West Virginia, a major coal-producing state, the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 to three that Congress had the power to set environmental standards for power plants, not the EPA. So people are starting to buck back a bit. They're starting to ask questions. They're not blindly accepting this and kind of glad. I think we're seeing growth. Well, yeah, and the other thing we've got to remember that these, these politicians are supposed to represent their constituents. Mm. Like it or not, Manchin is re representing his constituents more, I would argue, more than a lot of the other senators in Congress. Hey, he's got to keep there. those coal miners in mind, right? That's yeah. a lot of jobs. You know, and it's not just some super conservative, like, I don't care about anything, burn, baby, burn, coal, coal, <laughs> coal. I mean, obviously, the guy has leanings that are not conservative because he's a Democrat and he's still saying, you know what? We shouldn't just kill coal because we still need a lot of it mm -hmm. as well as other fossil fuels and hydrocarbons. So let's just not craft legislation that makes it an economic nightmare to develop power sources that we currently rely on and will for a very long time. In place of what? Giving subsidies to all these green projects? Green, why? Because they strip mine on the other side of the planet? Because they don't, why? Because they don't have a tailpipe, that's why. Hmm. But you know what? Just because something doesn't have a tailpipe doesn't mean it didn't create a lot of impact to the environment to make it, run it. Mm -hmm. There's more than one factor that affects our planet. There's more than one molecule that matters. And if you starve reliable and abundant energy to people and their quality of living goes down and they may even have to start worrying about how they're going to get reliable shelter or even food in some parts of the world i can promise you they aren't going to give two craps about pollution in the air that they can't see they're going to be worried about how they're going to feed themselves right so be careful how far you push the green thing because it can boomerang to the point that a good chunk of the world doesn't care at all mm -hmm. because they got bigger problems. Like, how am I going to survive tomorrow? Where am I going to get my food? How am I going to cook it? Because when people are relegated to that state of existence, they don't care about environmentally threatened species or ecosystems. They care about how am I going to live? How are my children going to live? So if you want more people to care about the environment, I would argue you should increase energy abundance for them not ask them to go from the pre-industrialized age to the modern age without using coal and oil because 
There's no other way to do it that we're aware of yet. Wind turbines and solar panels don't seem to get it there. In mm. fact, all they seem to do at scale, when misapplied, is to create regression, as in France, having to convert boilers to run on not just natural gas, but petroleum oil to burn mm. for electricity. Or coal in Germany, lignite stuff. Well, our wind isn't doing really well, so let's burn this dirty brown lignite stuff on these aging coal plants because we just thought they were relics. That's some of the most soot, nasty stuff. Mm. These agendas are not going in the right direction for even the developed countries, and they're not going to stand a candle chance in a hurricane to stay lit to do the same thing in a developing country. So be careful what you wish for. You wanted to wish for all these things to get rid of fossil fuels. At the end of the day, if you get what you wish for, a lot of the population won't care about endangered species. They won't care about the climate in general. They won't care about the future very much, especially decades away. Why would they? They have a problem today. I don't have energy. That's creating me a problem because now it's hard to get food. Now it's hard to cook food. Now it's hard to just live other than subsistence living. So, you know, I mean, we could just kind of leave it up on that. But every episode, we're trying to at least do one little diatribe about be honest with yourself about where your energy comes from and what you need for your modern life. And if you want a lot of people to care about the things in the environment and the general health, I guess, of every animal and ecosystem here, don't impoverish them. Because poverty-stricken areas don't care about any of that stuff. They can't afford to. Eloquent and emphatic as always. I think we're coming up on 45 minutes, so I agree. That's a good place to leave it. But like Anthony said, we're just trying to stimulate your minds, introduce some perspectives and maybe a little bit of ammunition should you have these conversations with other people. Have these conversations with other people. There's a lot going on, and we're all involved in some capacity, so... Why not educate the people around us? And you can continue to educate yourself by going to www.rarepetro.com where we have tons of other content like that periodical I mentioned from a year and a half ago. We're turning this stuff out. It's going to be beneficial for you to look at if you're in the energy space, but that's enough self-promo. This has been Tavis Killian and Anthony McDaniels bringing you another episode of the Wacky World of Energy. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Thanks, Tavis.